0: There's so many layers to what happens when you say Jesus is queer and that people aren't like it disrupts so many things. So that statement can work on two levels, like one in that sort of liberationist level, like when James Cone says God is a black man or Vine Deloria says God is red or what uh, Christina Cleveland says, this sort of sense that insofar as we want to claim that God is present or real in some way. We have to start from this place of the oppressed and marginalized that God identifies there.
1: Hello and welcome. You're listening to the podcast where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, sexuality, spiritual formation, how we got here, and how to move forward post-evangelicalism. Nothing is off limits in our conversations with scholars, Seekers, activists, and writers in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. Welcome to Holy Heretics.
2: Hello, everyone. This is Gary Allen back with another episode of Holy Heretics, and I hope you enjoyed our last conversation with Barbara Brown Taylor. One of the joys I've found of being in this space is the opportunity to listen and learn from so many different voices and stories representing the spiritual journey. And today we are going to explore the subversive, prophetic side of spirituality as we hope to uncover opportunities to free ourselves as well as our neighbors from the systems and the people and theologies seeking to dominate and malform our hearts and minds, souls, and bodies. And by systems, I mean the normative beliefs that just surround us on a daily basis. It's the the water that we swim in. It's the air that we breathe. It's things like whiteness or cisgender ideology or patriarchy, militarism here in the United States, capitalism, white supremacy, nationalism, and then the religious fundamentalism that prop up all of these beliefs and ideologies. In a sense, resisting all of these inhuman ideologies is one of the best ways to love God and to also love our neighbor. In the Gospels, we see that Jesus tells us that whatever we've done to the least of these, we have literally done it to him. And that means in a very real sense how we treat the least human person—the trans kid, the queer kid, the poor, the non-white, the female, the non-American, the homeless, the immigrant, the refugee— the unintelligent, the unappealing, even MAGA people. The way we treat them is the way we treat God. And when we see them marginalized or victimized, we should recognize God being marginalized and victimized in their place. And so the best way to love God is by loving our neighbor and freeing our neighbor from those systems of violence and oppression. And one of the ways that we can do this in the modern world is through The Posture and the Presence and Praxis of Resistance. Now, I'm not talking about violent resistance. I'm talking about more of the nonviolent resistance that we saw in Dr. Martin Luther King or Nelson Mandela or even Gandhi. And Webster describes this notion of resistance as the inherent ability of an organism to resist harmful influences. French philosopher Jacques Hillel said it best when he wrote, Christians were never meant to be normal. We've always been holy troublemakers who do not accept the world as it is, but we insist on the world becoming the way God wants it to be. And one of the ways that we work to form the world into the way God wants it to be is by resisting dominant power structures. According to Pastor Robin Myers in his book, Spiritual Defiance, he says, The gospel of Jesus was birthed in resistance to the brutal normalcy of the Roman Empire. And we know that the early church was born as a collective act of defiance against Rome, and it prospered best not from the seats of power, but as an underground community of resistance. And resistance isn't some isolated political posture that we can take in our privileged position. It's rather an entire way of life that calls into question the sanity of this present reality. It is often the public rejection of social, religious, spiritual, economic, and cultural values that underline life as usual. So, how do you do it? How do you and I work toward resisting these dominant power structures that are malforming not only us, but our neighbors? And what might it look like? for you to work for liberation and freedom in your daily life? And and how do you subvert and resist these systems of death and deprivation and destruction? Well, thankfully, we have some help. We're joined today by Ash Van Steinwick, who is here to show us the way. Ash is the co-founder of the Center for Prophetic Imagination. She's a writer, teacher, organizer, and spiritual director, and for nearly 15 years, she has sown seeds of subversive spirituality throughout North America. Ash is the author of That Holy Anarchist, Unkingdom, and A Wolf at the Gate. She has a BS in ministry and an MDiv and studied spiritual direction at the University of St. Catharines, and she's currently working on her doctoral dissertation at United Theological Seminary. So, Ash, welcome to the show. It's an honor to have you. I can't wait to learn from you and listen to how you have carved out beautiful ways of resistance and liberation in your life. I want to start with a little background just to get to know you more. Um, Maybe what's one thing that's not in your bio that you would want listeners to know, or, or maybe even just something that you wish everyone knew about you?
0: Oh, so many things. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, the sorts of things like, you know, you just gave a list of my theological pedigree and that, uh, you know, sounds detached, you know, when you, when you hear that sort of thing. And so, if you were like following around in my life, you'd see all kinds of other things. You know, I've got like a family and a, a 14-year-old son and I watch lots of anime. But the thing it seems like I organize my life around, and this might seem silly to people, is karaoke, which I think of as like this sort of almost quasi-spiritual practice. interesting. Which I don't want to talk about too much around that, but it might come up when you, we talk about Chad Myers, because I know that one of the questions you might want to explore is Chad, because I've pissed Chad off around karaoke before. So, <laughs> wow. maybe it'll come up.
2: Maybe it'll come up. <laughs> hey, there, there you go. Well, I, I'm just glad to to have a fellow uh, person in this space that knows who Ched Myers is. Um, his his work truly cha- changed my life. Um, I, I can, you know, I think we can all point to a, a person or a place or a moment that changed your life forever, and and it probably happens several times. Hopefully, as we as we grow and change, but his book, Binding the Strong Man set me mm-hmm. on a journey that I'm, that I'm still on. So, wow. Yeah. We need to talk about Chet later on. Yeah. Um, we, we talked off air about the, the concept of really dedicating space for marginalization, for marginalized voices. Um, mm-hmm. I don't want to assume too much, but was there a moment in your spiritual journey and in your embodied journey where you realize maybe your voice or your your beliefs or thought weren't welcome in normative christianity
0: you know it's kind of can it, it's it's a bit of a confusing thing to know how to answer because so i am currently 46 years old and i found i learned that i was a trans woman when i was 45 wow so you'd think before that because the, the general operating assumption that people have is that for those 45 years, I was operating in a place of, of raw, you know, cis-hetero uh, power and, you know, authority or something. But that's not how it works. So um, my interior experience of things, like I felt like there was things off and the way I looked at things and perceived things was always queer. Hmm. Now, people didn't necessarily perceive me that way, but there was always this disconnect. And so, it just so happened that I'd always find myself um, in kind of the nooks and crannies and the margins of spaces, not because I was such a great ally, but it's because the only places I felt really safe. Wow. And my perspective and the things that I'd share were often from that perspective and were rejected and largely because of that. So, I can't say that my perspective and thoughts and ideas were rejected because of transphobia or queer phobia or heteronormativity or anything like that. Exactly, because it's, um, you know, how how do you analyze that? But um, there was a queerness early on. And then also other things like, you know, I grew up lower income and neurodivergent. So that's in the mix there too. But like, there's always this something just out of sync, about how I was looking at and what I was at things and what I was picking up and exploring. Now, when I look back at my life now, I, I realize how much energy I spent keeping my transness from myself. Mm. And so, but it eked out. So now I could be like, oh my God, it was kind of obvious. And lots of people <laughs> knew. So when I did come out, there's tons of people who are like, mm hmm, yeah. Yeah, we knew. Yeah, we we knew. Yeah. And so that was always in there. So, There's tons of perspectives I had that would somehow like that, like the voice of Ash was like speaking out early on and I I would get these reactions and I didn't understand what people were reacting to, but I do now.
2: Mm. Did you recognize that as Ash or at that time, or were you just kind of like, Hey, I don't know where these views and voices are coming from, but. It just seemed, it just seemed like I was seeing something that, seemed so
0: obvious. My The perspectives I had seemed so obvious and in, intuitive, but clear. And then when I point them out, people react. Mm. Like I had this tendency, this noticing of who was excluded and this sort of way of not judging things the way other people would want to judge things. It was just, I felt out of sync mm. and I felt miserable about it because I didn't know what was wrong with me. Mm. Like, why am I out of sync with everybody? Yeah. Well, I do understand now. So it was the the queer magic was there even then, but I didn't. It wasn't to the level of conscious awareness of where it was coming from. Now, I would have associated that as part of my vocation, and and I would have seen that as sort of a a spiritual thing, like the spirit of God was somehow in it. Mm-hmm. And I still see it that way. So now I just get to offend people intentionally by like <laughs> referring to Jesus as queer and the Holy Spirit as queer. And they think yep. I'm being playful about it, which I am, but I'm also deadly serious. Like I don't, I'm not saying that in some sort of metaphoric, <laughs> flippant way. Right. It's just a playfully serious way.
2: Mm-hmm. So what does that mean to you to say Jesus was queer? Because I've I've said that and pointed to that. You know, anytime you you change the pronouns, you change the description um, of referring to God as a cisgendered white male dude. Uh, everybody gets pissed off right i mean i, I just mm-hmm. spoke with i just spoke with christina cleveland who refers to god as a black woman if mm-hmm. if you can if you can revert refer to god as queer or trans um what does that mean to you and and what are the messages that we maybe aren't seeing or or receiving when we only see god as you know this normative um cisgendered white dude
0: There's so many layers to what happens when you say Jesus is queer and that people aren't like, it disrupts so many things. Mm -hmm. So that statement can work on two levels, like one in that sort of liberationist level, like when James Cone says God is a black man or Vine Deloria says God is red or what uh, Christina Cleveland says, this sort of sense that. Insofar as we want to claim that God is present or real in some way, we have to start from this place of the oppressed and marginalized that God identifies there. Not in some sort of weird, like, God's everywhere, so, you know, hashtag all lives matter kind of sad way that, you know, dominant culture wants to do, but no, there's a particular way. So there's that kind of sense, like, oh, Jesus is queer in that sort of solidarity way. Um, but then there's also the other layer, like, no, well, you know, we can't really use – it's it's funny. People get upset when you somehow use queer terminology, like and, – and you refer to Jesus historically that way. But then they don't get upset the way we translate the Apostle Paul's words at, to refer to homosexuality. I'm like, well, no, homosexuality <laughs> is a modern concept. Right. And that's being imported back. Um, And so queerness is just a framework for looking back. You know, we can look at all kinds of things through that lens. Now, would Jesus in ancient Palestine say, yes, I'm queer? Like, no, that's like a foreign concept. Mm -hmm. But um, at the same time, the idea of a, a hard gender binary with our definitions of heterosexuality, like we can't, we have this bad assumption of thinking everything, further back in time is increasingly conservative. That's not true. <laughs> and things in the future don't become progressive, more progressive. Mm-hmm. That's a weird way of seeing history that's not accurate. That's a philosophical grid. And if we went back, we, things are queer than we think they are. <laughs> and Jesus did not fit the ideal of what some dude is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, there's that sense that Jesus um, was queer. But then also, like... Let's just take uh, the orthodox view of Christianity at full seriousness, that somehow Jesus is the firstborn among the resurrected of the dead. Um, when Jesus told us like that you know, won't be given in marriage, and so all of our sense of gender and sexuality is out the window right. for Jesus, that's already queer. And also, Jesus is in a polyamorous relationship with the sum totality of the body of Christ. That's hella queer. So, like, <laughs> we can't just be acting as though Jesus is a cis het dude floating up in heaven. And w- when we talk about Jesus in those cis heteronormative ways, no one gets upset. But if you start wondering, like, well, maybe there's something queer going on here, people freak out. Right. And so there's all those layers. Mm-hmm. And it, what it does is it exposes what people think of not only as normal, but what people think of as holy. And It exposes the fact that they see me as fundamentally profane, and that my assertion that somehow the Spirit of God animates my transness and my sexuality is offensive.
2: Mm.
0: And that, to me, is a wonderful thing to start discerning around with somebody if they're willing to go there, and most people aren't.
2: No, no, I, I don't think they are. So I want to ask maybe a, a little bit of a, a personal and professional uh, question about liberation and and what I've seen you describe as liberationist spirituality. That's kind of the intersection mm-hmm. in which you live and move and have your being. Um, is that different from the kind of classical academic study of liberation theology? Or, or can, you, can, you help, can you help us un, un, understand that?
0: I mean, it's a hazy distinction. So if you like Google liberation spirituality, you know, liberation theology stuff comes up. Mm-hmm. And so like you'll hear, you know, you'll read someone like Leonardo Boff write about spirituality. and But Leonardo Boff is a liberation theologian. And so on one level, it's maybe the same thing. But to me, it's about um, reframing the focus and the priority. So usually when folks talk about theology – we're talking about ideas, particularly in some sort of academic way. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you maybe you get regular people talking about theology, but it's more like for specialists, like it's kind of like this discipline, right? Mm-hmm. But spirituality is something that everyone who, unless they really claim some sort of atheist spa- space or agnosticism where they're just indifferent to it altogether, will claim to be pursuing some sort of spirituality. But they might not say that about theology, even though we, we might know that, well, you can't be doing spirituality without to be doing theology. But there's <laughs> something we kind of understand that spirituality somehow comes from the ground up in a way that maybe we think that theology comes from the academy down. Mm. So, that's part of the kind of refocusing. Because- mm. Whether we like it or not, if we especially if we start talking about Latin American liberation theology, was generally done by well educated um, people, mostly of European descent, to reflect upon their experiences in solidarity with um, oppressed peoples in Latin America. And now we do see some liberation theology emerge from the oppressed people of Latin America, but that's not generally what was happening. Now. The spirituality that was emerging though, that's different. I see. Like that's where that was coming from. So it's kind of a way of centering on the experiences and practices of people who are experiencing oppression, who are longing for justice and asking what are the unique features and aspects of that and the particularities of it. That makes sense. And saying like, how do we focus in on that? and prioritize that before it bubbles before we like let it get captured as an academic exploration it's like where's the what's the embodied day-to-day way of being that someone who is grappling with these big questions who's experiencing oppression how do they understand their spirituality and how can that be nurtured and cultivated in a way that is is life giving and attends to their longing for justice and like some sort of deep way. And yeah, and that can go into we can get theological about it and academic and explore that. And I you know, I do that. Like it's not like I'm shitting all over academic theologians. I just think, you know, they have they exist to serve people. Theology needs to exist to serve people in the margins. Mm -hmm. And spirituality comes from them. So I think it's just about focusing on that and developing practices from that place.
2: I like that. So maybe a simple question about liberation. Um from a body of Christ perspective, I think it's it's pretty easy to see as a as a Western individual, even as a an American, kind of all the things that we need to be liberated from. Mm-hmm. Violence, oppression, colonialization, imperialism, et cetera. But what do you see from your seat that the body of Christ itself needs to be liberated from today?
0: So much. And a lot of it is there's some of the stuff that's kind of easy to see. Like when you see Trump and Trump supporters, mm-hmm. and then people post memes making fun of evangelicals, it's like, well, yeah. <laughs> right. Obviously, that <laughs> overt white supremacy. Like overly enmeshed within systems of power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the more subtle stuff, though, that we, especially liberal or progressive or even like radical people need to look at, is the like the more faint whiffs of supremacy and dependence upon oppressive systems. Like this idea that somehow we need to be liberated from the idea that somehow Christianity is more true or better than other traditions exactly because to me it's like now and i'm saying that as someone who is i'm all in on team jesus like i love jesus i feel like i've had mystical experiences like my sense of identity is wrapped up in jesus my whole life is poured into this um and i i don't want to and i don't like the way a lot of interfaith stuff flattens everything and makes everything kind of the same like so um so i'm not talking about that it's this recognition of like well, I can talk about difference and value Jesus without ever having to go into better than. Just like I can be married and not start having to say my spouse is better than all the other spouses. Like <laughs> You don't have to go into that. That's a weird relational thing to do that. Why do you have to take something that's intimate and relational mm. and immediately move to a place of dominance and power?
2: Mm.
0: That's a ridiculously ingrained habit in most streams of Christianity, no matter how progressive they are. You can tell when you get people get defensive when you start challenging things, <laughs> and then just the way that practically shows up in being dependent like, even the most progressive of organizations and groups will still cater and acquiesce to its conservative elements because of money, exactly. And so, and when that happens, that means they're going to prioritize the money people over the oppressed people. Well, and the, you know, the Jesus stuff is like. You know, to paraphrase our Lord, it's like fuck that shit. <laughs> um, what we really need to do is, if you want treasure, you know, you know, look to the <laughs> look to the least of these. All this stuff Jesus is talking about, especially in Luke, is trying to flip that, but we don't believe it. Mm. We want our security and stability in these systems, and we really don't want to. We really don't want to gamble
2: mm-hmm.
0: on this sort of ephemeral um kind of fragility of what Jesus is talking about when Jesus talks about the kingdom of god mm. which is like you know it's laying up treasures in heaven and all that stuff it sounds like sounds nice and and poetic but like it's actually terrifying to think about like oh if if you took that stuff seriously everything everything that we're doing is kind of off mm. even among the most noble of our organizations. Even my nonprofit, it's like, I spend a lot of time figuring out how do I land major donors and that's <laughs> right. shitty. Right. Right. Yeah. Because capitalism makes and some, it's like, I don't want to moralize and blame every individual for like having to make these choices because we live in a system where we kind of have to, otherwise we're going to end up destitute yeah, and not know what we're going to do. Yeah. We're in a really hard situation.
2: We mentioned uh, Chad Myers and his book uh, "Binding the Strong Man" uh, a, little, a little bit ago, and and I want to kind of uh, talk about the fact. So, for our listeners who aren't aware of that book, it's a, a highly academic book. Um, it's a exegesis of the Gospel of Mark, and it is an interpretation of both the uh, narrative within Mark, as well as the central figure of Mark, which is Jesus. And Jesus is confronting the powers that be. So it's a political reading. and It's a political interpretation of the gospel of Mark. And I think what Myers did so well that even me in my sort of unscholarly reading of it, I was made aware of uh, the central theme of the book and, and maybe even the central uh, theme of our, our lives as Westerners that that we live in and are the beneficiaries of and the participants in one of the most dominant global empires in the world, and mm-hmm. Jesus also lived as a marginalized person uh, in the most dominant empire of his day, which was of of course Rome. Now, now most most Americans don't like the fact that we are an empire. They will either eschew that language or. You know they'll they'll change it to a a superpower or some other name, but but the truth is that that we do live in an empire and it it dominates how we act and how we think and who we sleep with, etc. From your vantage point as a liberationist theologian, um, as well as a a person who is uh, oftentimes the victim of empire, how do you help us? see and then respond to and understand uh the dominant power of empire uh on our daily lives. And that was a really terrible way of asking that question, by the way. But I'm I'm getting around like, you know, like this there is there are the powers that be and they Mm -hmm. are shaping us on a daily basis. And we don't even know it. So maybe how do we awaken to (sighs) it and then how do we resist it? I mean that's a
0: I thought it was a great way of asking it because it's a beefy, complicated question. <laughs> and I could, and I'm not even exaggerating, I could talk 20 hours straight on this. And I've done workshops and all kinds of things because, like, even what empire means
2: mm. is
0: a complicated thing. So, like, you know, at the most generic sense, uh, an empire is a nation exerting coercive dominance over other nations, which America fits that. Hundred percent. You know, the UK still kind of fits that. Um, Russia, you know, like, but but we recognize that the way we do empire now is different than the more of the overt age of colonization. And then we also have this hyper capitalist model of like, well, a lot of these people are not beholden to a nation anymore. The Bezoses and the, you know Bill Gates. All of these people they're like a superstructure of the super wealthy that exist at a globalized level. So empire even that there is like, well, we can't really just talk about nations
2: mm-hmm.
0: exactly. But the nations are serving their interests. So it's this messy, complicated thing. Now the where you took the question is like, well, start it has this assumption like, well we don't even we're not even aware of all this stuff. Right. Because the question of empire, there's that political Um, way of looking at it but there's a spiritual way of looking at it that most people don't want to that's not how we usually frame it that there's an empire is like a nexus a cluster of oppressive systems that in order to um, do what they want to do an empire either has to use excessive force or um, be sneaky so like Um, We either go to war or we exert dominance in other ways. But either way, we have to normalize it. So, like, um, you know, everyone who's listening to uh, this and, you know, everyone who's alive has experienced more warfare like in the United States. We've been at war more often than we haven't been. Mm. And we barely notice that at certain points unless you're some sort of anti-war activist because it's normalized. We think this is normal. Um, we think uh, cis-heteropatriarchy is normal. We think white supremacy at certain levels is normal. And where we draw the line is when we where our comfort level is or how it impacts us. So we have all these oppressive systems that are normalized and naturalized by these myths, these stories with teeth that shape our perception of the world. And that are constantly reinforced by messages and symbols. So, and this is really hard for people to accept because we believe one of those myths that somehow we're independent, autonomous thinkers who can see the world accurately and make meaningful choices, which isn't true. Mm. We don't generally have as much autonomy and freedom to think as we believe. And so, we don't really often get meaningful actions and choices. Like I like to tell people that I'm 99% deterministic, <laughs> that all these systems so shape our subjectivity that we're kind of fucked, mm. um, that, that all of my faith and spirituality lives in that remaining 1% and that the only way to begin to really resist well isn't by having some sort of really good blueprint as much as that might offend my you know Marxist-Leninist friends. Like to have some really perfect system that we figured out and then um, – try as hard as we can, as cleverly as we can to make that happen. Like, no, I'm a spiritual person. So, and I believe what I say when I talk about spiritual things. So, I believe that our hope begins in discerning where we see the spirit moving in the world and responding to that so that with this conviction that the spirit opens up possibility for meaningful action in the world and that comes and that's not as exactly a simple thing i'm not i don't want to be naive and simplistic about it but resistance has to come from this place of um not just trying to figure out what's all the right things to do and let's check it off the list but how like how do we discern what's real who do we give our attention to and then how do we begin to from noticing what's ha- actually happening in the world with more and more um, clarity, begin to act in the world, from from what we're noticing rather than from what these determining scripts of our empire, these myths, which um, we're not, we don't have to be indoctrinated by them. We don't have to have like children's books read to us about how great America is. It's just in the air. It's we we, we absorb it right so much so that I didn't realize I was trans until I was you know forty five. How, that's how much we we internalize these scripts even though before that i for at least a decade i was like i had really close trans friends and was doing all the solidarity stuff it just took that long for me to be able to discern past these internalized scripts that told me that it was impossible for me to be that way now i bring that up not because like i want to like somehow highlight my specialness as a trans woman Because I think, I suspect that everyone has versions of that and it might not have to do with their gender, but we have these things that are fundamentally true about ourselves that have been pushed down because of the scripts of our society. So how many people feel like crap because they feel like they're supposed to live up to something, but that if they really, really, really paid attention to their deepest longings and their deepest convictions about what's important and true – would live differently. Mm. And so, that sort of attentiveness, that discernment, um, and I'm using discernment in kind of the Ignatian spiritual way of like noticing what's life-giving, what's death-dealing, paying attention to that and then broadening that out from beyond our own subjective, subjective experiences to the people around us to then be able to create possibilities for something different. That's to me where the core of resistance has to come from. And yes, also organizing and all the other stuff, that's important too. But to me, from a spiritual place, that's where it begins.
2: Mm, I love that. Well, you know, I I think for me, um, one of the ways in which I have tried to resist the notion of empire is – Pulling away from my identity as an American and the identity that, as you said earlier, America is first, uh, America is best. This this mm-hmm. notion of American exceptionalism. The problem is it is everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, that idea and that concept of American exceptionalism, of patriotism, it, it's one step away from uh, militarism, right? Because there's yeah. there's hardly there's hardly any. Conversation about what it means to be an American and what it means to be patriotic that doesn't involve violence and in our military. Um, mm-hmm. And when you began questioning that, oh my God, I mean, you are a radical. You are an outsider. My wife and I and our kids live in Colorado Springs and oh, it, wow. it is, yeah. Ground yeah, zero. Yeah, it, it totally is ground zero for so many of these things that come together to form just our view of the world i mean we have you know white uh, evangelical conservatism we are dominated here in this town by the military every saturday the when air force football plays the f16s fly over right and so mm-hmm. It, that is a liturgical act and it is moving yeah. us and, and framing us to worship empire, to worship America. Um, uh, what, what do maybe, what are some of the small ways in which we can resist? We can subvert the very empire that we live in or, or maybe a better question, how have you subverted the American empire in, in your life, through, uh, through and motivated by your spirituality,
0: Oof. you know. To <laughs> me, you know, there's the big and small ways, and and to me, it's, you know, yeah. You know, I don't want to. I could slide into my dissertation right here, which would be perilous for everyone listening. <laughs> but to me, part of it is kind of connecting that inner work with the outer work, so that we like instead of there's this instinct that people have. And I think it comes from sort of that purity culture idea of being anxious about doing the right things and performing it the right way. And so, and it's the difference between, you know, I'm, this is a little detour, but I'm getting somewhere with it. I promise. It's the difference between when someone is anxiously trying to correct themselves for mispronouncing me. Mm. And you can tell, like, I can tell it's like, because they don't want to be seen as a bad person. They want to get it right. Yeah. Versus the people who are doing that because like, they love me and they want to make sure that I'm being respected and they want to make sure we have an integrity in our relationship. Mm. Those are two different impulses and they're often mixed together. So I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. Now, why do I bring that up? Um, this idea of how we resist is easy to fall into it as like trying to live up to some new script of like, well, the kingdom of God looks like this. So I'm going to do this sort of thing. And I've burnt out trying hard to be all radical jesus person because it wasn't coming from a place where I was really attending to my own soul as part of that process. And, and this, you know, for me, like w- one of the things that I'm doing with my dissertation, it's building around a model for discernment where we understand, like, so if I recognize that part of the stories that we tell around whiteness aren't just harmful for people of color, but also – for white people, because it's a bullshit story. Mm-hmm. Whiteness is a construct that was made up in order to legitimize slavery. That's where whiteness comes from. Yep. Before that, we didn't use the category of white to differentiate people.
2: Yeah, we were German, we were English, we were whatever. And
0: so tied in with that is a whole bunch of stories
2: mm-hmm.
0: that are harmful for white people because we can't live up to the manifest destiny of what it means to be white. Most of us are failures at being really good white people. So we feel like shit. Right. So it, we're trapped in it, too. Hmm. So if I notice that story, I have this this thing. Look, like what do I do about it now? If I just anxiously just show up at every Black Lives Matter protest, which, you know, I've done Black Lives Matter protests and do that from an anxious place of making sure I'm doing the right thing because I feel bad. Is that better than nothing? Potentially. But what's better is for me to start looking at. I have these internalized things. What's some of the, what are some of the narratives of like success that are part of this white script Mm. and what is underneath it? What's that keeping me from? Like, how is that obscuring my actual vocation? And so that's an internal question. So then there's an invitation there of what's a little step I can take to move more towards that spiritual vocation, that thing that's more life-giving um, in, def- in some small way of defying the script. And then I can also look outward, outside of me, to the systems of white supremacy and then see, show up um, in solidarity for Black Lives Matter stuff, but not from a place of performing, but realizing, oh, my God, this is an external expression of that same struggle I'm working with internally. So mm-hmm. now me showing up on the street is an outward expression of this inner work I'm doing and so I'm doing this from a place of real vulnerable honesty, not from a place of performing anything. And I'm not doing it from a place of anxiety and wanting to look good, I'm doing it from a place of hunger and longing. And so to me, what? how does that show up? Um, I've increasingly, and this is hard, tried to live my life in a way that is faithful to my vocation even though You know, I'm educated and in debt, and I don't work in a church, (laughs) right? Which is harder when you're a trans woman to get a church job. But even before, I felt like I had to be faithful to the ways. So, like, I wanted to be able to say what I wanted to say without worrying about the repercussions. Mm -hmm. So, that's one way. So, that I could just always feel free to say what I want to say. But then also, to then challenge then I can challenge the systems outside of me. So, I'm like, I'll go into churches and use the opportunity to say, what is the thing that I can say here that have the most impact? Like, um, I don't want to just blow up my one chance to say something in this church. Maybe the best thing is to have a relationship here. Maybe it's to say the hard thing one time and never get invited back. (laughs) But I have the freedom to discern that question because I'm not beholden. Mm -hmm. So, that's an example. Or just the ways that... um, Um, Like I remember, you know, the way approaching the activistic sorts of things, I don't approach activism as though, um, you know, and I know not everyone who's listening is like going to get arrested on the streets or anything, but like just these sorts of acts that I've done, I don't approach them from the lens of me trying to change anything fundamentally. I'm approaching it as... What, am I, what can I learn here? So anytime I do some sort of act where I'm resisting stuff, I check in with myself and look at what's being dislodged within me. Hmm. This sort of kind of posture, I think, is really important. So practically, it means noticing how I relate to everyone and how those relationships are changing at kind of a, a closer level, noticing what's changing inside of me as these relationships change, and then noticing how I show up politically and seeing all of it interconnected. And always checking in at how these things are shifting and influencing each other.
2: Ash, I want to come back to a phrase you used just a second ago, and you talked about doing the inner work.
1: Mm -hmm. Um,
2: I, I think a lot of us in progressive circles understand activism. We understand that our call is to be the hands and feet of Christ in the world, and so we're uh, as you said, showing up for Black Lives Matter, we are using our vote to vote for compassionate politics versus cruelty. We are, you know, engaged in all kinds of public ways. But you seem to be hinting at the real need to do the inner work first and to have your heart and soul appropriately aligned toward that. If it's not too much to ask, um, what does that look like for you and in, in your inner spirituality that that helps frame your outward vocational work?
0: I wouldn't say it's um, that the inner work has to come first as much as like i I've been using this word more and more lately, recursive. It's this process that moves back and forth, that when we're engaged in political realities, it is spiritual and it's in it's impacting us in our inner inner world. And then when we're doing inner work, um, the political forces are still there. And so being aware of that in both spaces, because one of the other myths that we've inherited is this idea of a divided world or a bifurcated world where there's a political world and a spiritual one or um, social and personal, but everything's political, everything's spiritual. Mm. And we need to know that. And so how does that look? It's like, Um, I try to be um, fiercely honest with myself about discomforts that come up when I'm in political spaces or when I'm engaging people um, who are, you know, experiencing different kinds of oppression and I feel frustrated about it. Like, I'm not going to just avoid conflict, be conflict avoidant and just kind of do the performative nice thing. Because, like, for me personally… Um, And I've seen this from the outside, but now I'm experiencing it from the inside. Um, The worst thing for me is not conservative people who hate trans women talking bad to me. The worst thing for me is the silence of progressive or liberal allies Mm. who aren't doing anything and who are non-responsive to like the growing waves of the anti-trans backlash that is kind of at the center of the culture war right now. There's a lot of crickets about it. Mm. Yet when Pride Month comes along, all those
2: yeah. Yay. rainbow
0: Yay. flags come out. Mm-hmm. But the tea is silent in LGBTQ, <laughs> right? And so I, I'm aware of that. So I also, and I know where it's coming from generally. And so I notice, like, well, that happens to me too with other people's struggle. And so I have to be willing to sit with the discomfort and look at it and ask why. And not be afraid to look at that. And so, um, when, if I look at solidarity or showing up in different ways, as a spiritual practice, it's not because I'm trying to moralistically do the right thing. It's because I'm open to the possibility that it's going to shake something loose that's unsavory. But that there'll be an invitation for me to grow and heal.
1: Mm.
0: And that I should welcome that. And that's really hard for progressive and liberal people to do Hmm. because, you know, we have our own purity around this stuff. Hmm. Um, But that's what's at stake. So when I have racist thoughts Hmm. that come up, I will recognize I'm not going to blame myself too much for that because I didn't put it there.
2: Hmm.
0: That was put in me. And But I'm not going to hide away from it or legitimize it or justify it. I'm going to sit with it.
2: Hmm.
0: That it's possible for me to have racist thoughts even while I'm at a Black Lives Matter protest. (laughs) And I have to hold on to that and say, these two things, I'm struggling with white supremacy inside me and outside of me at the same time. And these are both part of the struggle. And so, right now I'm on the street, so I'm going to show up and be present to that, but then I'm not going to shy away from what's come up for me. So when I'm by myself, I'm going to sit and think about this and then have real relationships with people where I'm not putting it upon them. Like I have consent and we have an agreement where I can like process this and they can speak into my life without me being defensive. Now, people are so touchy right now about woke culture and they freak out about it. I'm like, no, no. Um, this isn't performative, polarizing, like, um, you know, shrill stuff. This is part of transformation. Like, I really want to uproot this stuff, not because of self-hatred, but because I love myself so damn much. Mm-hmm. I really want to be transformed and whole and healthy and be able to be a part of the struggle and present and filled with joy. Hmm. Um, and in order to do that, I want to uproot these things that are taking up real estate in my consciousness so that I can then replace them with the life-giving things that, um, yeah. And like you, I think that's where it gets really spiritual when we have to start thinking that way and believing that way. Otherwise we're just, this is what, what will end up happening. And I think almost every, um, group who is struggling against oppression knows this, that, um, That if you get a bunch of performative white liberals who show up, they can turn on you whenever they get exhausted. (laughs) Like what happens is like, if you're just doing this because you think it's the right thing and you want to be a good person, the moment you're too tired to keep doing it and there's no social benefit for you to do this at all, you will just join with the fascists. Right. This is what happens like and that might seem like it's overstating it mm-hmm. but that's what happens and so so i'm looking for the people that i consider my friends and allies people who are in solidarity with me around stuff i want to know why what they're in it for and i think that's true probably for any struggle like they you have to have a properly selfish reason for being a part of it and for me the reason I care about Black Lives Matter, I'm using that as an example because, you know, I live in Minneapolis and George Floyd Square is a mile south of me and this is all mm-hmm. still recent history um, because I think the carceral system of police and the legal system and the prisons is horrible for everyone. Um, and for me personally, like, it yes, is it compassion for, um, you know, people of color who experience violence disproportionately and, and now as a trans woman, am I – part of a disproportionate, a recipient of um, police violence. Yes, I guess I fit into that category now too. But Mm. for me, it's more than that, more than that sort of compassion thing. It's about this sort of recognition that I can't really get at the core of the toxicity of whiteness in my own life unless I'm in solidarity with other people who are struggling at it from a, a more grounded place. So, my solidarity is coming from this properly selfish place of saying, if I'm going to uproot this, I need your help. And so, I'm in solidarity with you for our collective liberation. Like, that's really where it has to come from. Wow. Not as some sort of condescending act of me showing up as a good ally. And for me as a trans woman, I don't want cis people showing up because they feel bad. I want them really believing that I have queer magic that'll help Mm. break their curse of patriarchy in their life so that they can be more liberated to show up. Mm. I want them to believe that to be true. When I talk like that, people accuse me of being a narcissist. But I'm like, like, okay, well, (laughs) then you don't get any of the queer magic then, do you?
2: (laughs) Wow. Well, yeah, because you have something to offer because of your difference. Yeah. Uh, Otherwise, it's just all going to, we're just all going to, R- r- and, and I think that's maybe part of my frustration with like th- the liberal progressives or the democratic party. It's like, well, how, how different mm-hmm. are you than the white supremacist and fascist in the Republican party? Cause it's still just all about you. It's still just all about maintaining your white power. You're just going about it in a, maybe a cleaned up version.
0: It's softer and gentler generally. Yeah. Not always, sure. but yeah. I mean like, okay, right. if I had to choose being, Beaten to death with this rock or like this Nerf bat. I guess I'll pick the Nerf bat. <laughs> right, but I'd rather not be beaten to death. Thank you. Still hitting me,
2: right? Yeah. Wow. oh man, I think we could go on for like another hour, um, and and that, which probably means uh, we need to have you on the show again. But I'll, I'll, let's just end with maybe one uh, one last question. Um, in light of all of this, what gives you hope? I hinted
0: at it earlier like this when I gave my little spiel. And I always, this is one of my go-to things that I talk, I say a lot, the the 99% deterministic spiel. Mm. Like my hope is not 1%. Like I really believe the Holy Spirit opens up new possibilities where there wouldn't otherwise be one. So whenever I'm talking to someone and I see something stirring in them where they're like breaking free. Um, From something like, and I don't, you can't predict when that'll happen. When I see someone like stirring and being agitated and they're following some sort of deep invitation to move in a new direction. I believe that's the Holy Spirit at work. And we could maybe, you could name that some other way. There's non-theistic ways of naming that and that's fine. Hmm. But I find hope in that. And then when you somehow, you can see that in larger levels, sometimes socially, And organizationally things break like that, and all of a sudden shifts happen that wouldn't that are not predictable. And so I have a lot of hope that something's going on, and that if we attend to that and give our attention um to you know to the margins, to the places where Jesus says, Hey, look over there, rather than to the halls of power, to the places of dominance to the celebrities, if we're giving our attention to where Jesus says we should be giving our attention and we're noticing, we can see these little things bubbling up all the time and something can happen. Hmm. And that's where my hope is.
2: Wow. Ash, thank you so much for your voice, for your embodied presence, for your uh, theology, for those of us who want uh, more information from you. Where can they find you personally and, and maybe even professionally with the center for prophetic imagination.
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, we have a website on prophetic imagination.org. And if you look center for prophetic imagination up on Facebook, we have a strong Facebook presence in particular and yeah, folks should follow us there. We've got some stuff coming up this fall and in the early year that hopefully people would be into. So they should check that out. And personally, um, um, I have a Facebook page too and that's probably where I'm most active as I guess uh, as a Gen Xer like the <laughs> Facebook is like a Gen X wasteland at this point it seems like <laughs> but you know you just, you know Facebook me Maki Ash Van Steenwick but then I also um, if you look at Maki M-A-K-I Ash A-S-H-E dot com um, that's my personal website you can find me there personally.
2: Okay, we'll do that. Thank you so much. This has been an incredible conversation, and uh, hopefully there'll be more to come in the future.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Thank you for joining us. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society and written by Gary Allen Taylor. Music is by Faith and Foxholes. If you need more resources to guide your spiritual journey, Head to Sophiasociety.org for articles, resources, and our free ebook on faith deconstruction. And before we go, will you consider joining us on Patreon? Your partnership allows us to continue creating this sacred space for seekers like you. By becoming a patron, you gain early access to each podcast episode, as well as premium content and an exclusive invitation to join our monthly online community. Simply sign up at patreon.com slash holyheretics. See you next time.